0: and currently we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. All right, Genesis chapter 19. We're in a new chapter, another one. 18 out of 50 so far, (laughs) making progress. (laughs) Genesis chapter 19. What did we study last week? What did we look at last week at the uh, second half of chapter 18 there? Abraham bargaining with the yeah. Lord. There you go. Abraham bargaining with the Lord. That's right. If you remember from last week, the three strangers get up. They get up from their meal, and it's time to leave. And they're they're setting their eyes. They're setting their gaze. They're they're moving in the direction of Sodom. And Abraham figures out, uh oh, <laughs> they're going to Sodom. And in his mind, he knows why that's going to be happening. He knows why they're heading to Sodom. And he ends up having this discussion with Yahweh, with Yod Hevavheh, about. Sodom and the outcry is so great it's reached up to heaven and Abraham knowing that his nephew Lot and, and his relatives are down there that they're living down there ends up starting to bargain with God God wait a minute wait a minute uh, what if there's 50 righteous people would you spare the city for 50 and and the Lord says I would spare the city for 50 well what if there's 45 okay I'll do it for 45 what if there's 40 okay I'll do it for 40 30 okay 20 okay 10 okay that's enough you know and then they end at 10 And the strangers leave, and Abraham is kind of left where we were at basically. Is Abraham's kind of like, oh, you know, (laughs) there they go. I hope that works. I hope there's 10. So the strangers leave. The three strangers leave. Now we're opening up to chapter 19. So the three strangers leaving at the end of chapter 18, chapter 19. Now the two angels, wait a minute. How many? Two. We went from three to two. We had three in chapter 18. Now we're down to two. Who's missing? God, yeah, the Lord. The Lord is not among them. So apparently the Lord was there to talk with Abraham, to have that meeting there. But between there and Sodom, he's not with them. The angels are being sent on ahead with a mission. The mission is to find out if the outcry is as great as, as we think it is and destroy the place if it is. And deliver and you know any righteous. If you've got ten, you can spare the city. Ten or more, spare the city. If you've got less, oh well, you know maybe he's leaving it up to them what to do if there's less. And we'll see. uh, We'll get to that next week as to what they do if there's less. All right. So verse one. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening. I don't know if this is the same day or not. It's not clear because you remember chapter eighteen, verse one. It was the middle of the day when they came upon Abram, Abraham. It was the middle of the day. Now it's evening. If this is the same day, that's not a whole lot of time for all this stuff to have transpired. Except for the fact that they're angels. Exactly. Good job, Mike. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate. So remember when they came upon Abraham, and he was sitting in the entrance to the tent? Here, Lot is sitting in the entrance to the gate. All right. Uh, If you're thinking, and this is the gate of the city, by the way. This is not the gate to his house. All right? It's the gate of the, of the whole city. So if you're thinking of a gate like this, you would be mistaken. This is not the gate. This is a chain link fence. All right. So if that's what you have in mind, that's wrong. So I'm going to show you this picture now. No, it's not this either. All right. This is basically a wooden gate with some bricks on the side. That's not what the gates of ancient history look like either. It might have been, and depending on the size of Sodom, it could have been a big imposing stone structure similar to this one. Okay. You would walk into the gate or into the entryway of the gate. And as you were moving from the, from the front of that entryway into the city, you were passing through a thick area of gate where you would pass chambers. Here's some pictures of actual diagrams of actual gates during the era of solomon so this is later in history but it does provide for you an idea of the chambers so if you see the arrow that's where somebody would enter into the the starting point of the gate and then the end of the gate by the time you'd pass these chambers you would be entering the city proper okay so you would be passing through this area where there are chambers located all right so you would have um this is kind of hard to see it's kind of a cutaway view uh, of, a, of a gate to a typical city that you might pass into. You would come into, and then you have this area of chambers on either side, left and right of you, and maybe even a two-story uh, matter or two-story affair. All right, so the gate is a place that typically the leaders of the city would hang out. All right, the people who are important and making decisions, and they're well-connected within the city, they're sitting in the gate. And this is often where you would have the king making decisions. You would have judges sitting in that area. So it's uh, if you could... Picture Mayberry RFD, all right? You remember that old show or the Andy Griffith show? It'd be like Floyd's Barbershop, all right, where all the important people would get together and talk about what's going on in the city. But nowadays, modern illustration might be city hall, all right? So this is kind of a, and it's an entryway to the city, but it's kind of a city hall function because that's where the city leaders are, all right? And so the fact that Lot is sitting here, what does that suggest about Lot's status in the community? Up. Let's say that again. He's a higher up. Yeah, it sounds like he's a higher up. He's hanging out in the place where the higher ups hang out. So if he's not a higher up, he's a wannabe higher up. All right? Because he's hanging out where the higher ups hang out. All right? So he's hanging out in the gate. So it's evening and Lot was sitting in the gate. When Lot saw the two angels, what happens? What does he do according to that verse? What's the second half of the verse say? He rose to meet them. He rose to meet them. Good. He rose to meet them. And what else? And bowed down with his face to the ground. And he bowed down with his face to the ground. All right? So it's interesting because it seems like he's the only one that's greeting the strangers in this way. All right. Remember we talked about hospitality being as important as it was. We've talked about that, I think it was last week. Hospitality was such a big issue that this would be expected. You would you should meet a stranger. You should get up to meet the stranger. If you're in the gate and you're one of the higher ups, you should be greeting a stranger and, and in a hospitable fashion, welcoming them into the city. All right. But it seems like he's the one that's doing it. It doesn't sound like there's anybody else that's jumping up to meet them. And then he does something strange. He ends up bowing down to the ground in front of them. Typically what would happen is the stranger to the city would be the one bowing down. They would come to the city. They would bow down, and the leaders of the city would rise up and come to meet them. But in here you have a reversal of roles. So that maybe suggests perhaps he saw something special in these visitors. Perhaps they stood out from just your weary traveler sorts. All right. Verse 2. Somebody mind reading verse 2? And he said, Here now, my Lord's... Please turn in to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, No, but we will spend the night in the open square. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. So in this situation, does it sound like Lot expects them to come to destroy the city? No. <laughs> no, it doesn't. What clue do we have that that's not on his mind? Rise up early in the morning go on your way. Yeah, he thinks they're going to rise up early in the morning and go on their way. You remember Abraham... Abraham had a different perspective. Abraham seemed to know, as soon as Sodom was mentioned, what was up. Abraham seemed to know, oh dear, (laughs) because he knew the reputation of Sodom. We've seen it where we've already been in, in other places in our Bible study, where Sodom's been mentioned as a very wicked city. It's already got a reputation. Abraham is living in a tent 28 miles away, and he knows the reputation of Sodom. He knows about the outcry 28 miles away. Lot seems to be a little bit deafened to the outcry of the city, even though he lives in it. Mm. I live in an area where I, I can only afford a house in this area because I'm in the flight path of John Wayne Airport, okay. and the planes Ooh. are coming down yeah. and landing all the time. They're always coming down and landing, and it's over my house where they lower their landing gear. So it's the loudest, we're in Tustin, it's, right in, it's, it's the loudest, right in my neighborhood, and uh, we're getting to where we don't hear it so much anymore, because mm-hmm. we just get used to it. Yeah. It becomes just part of the cacophony mm-hmm. of our surroundings, and we get visitors, and they don't like to stay long, <laughs> right? It, they don't like to stay at our house long because they go, "What? I can't hear you. What do you say?" <laughs> and we go, "Oh, there's a jet going by right now. Let me wait until the jet passes. Okay, and then resume our conversation." It's really awkward in that sense because we've gotten to the point where we can function and almost completely be oblivious to it. Oh. Just like Lot is in this society functioning almost completely oblivious to the outcry that has reached to heaven, all right? So the strangers come up. These are the same strangers. Abraham goes, oh, they're going there to destroy the city. Lot's like, hey, come on in. I'll take care of you for the night, and you can leave the next day. He's completely oblivious to what their mission is, all right? Verse 3. Somebody might reading this one. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Excellent. Thank you, Steve. You remember from the last passage that we looked at that Abraham was able to persuade his divine visitor to change a course of action, right? And here we have Lot is able to persuade his divine visitors from their intended course of action. I'm saying prayer works, (laughs) all right? Mm -hmm. And that God is willing to hear our prayers... And God is willing to modify what he would have otherwise done because of our prayers. Now, I do believe in God's foreknowledge that he knows everything that's going to happen, and he's planned for the actual eventualities that will come to fruition. But he allows us to play a role in praying to change from what would have been a different outcome. Uh, Isn't that that kind of strange? I think he hopes that what? I think he hopes that we will, that we will participate in praying. Right. He's looking looking for us us to participate. Right. Yeah. So here we have a situation where Lot is able to persuade his divine visitors to change from their plan A to plan B. They were going to stay in the open square. Now they've decided, okay, we'll go in. They'll turn. They enter his house. And it says there he made a feast for them. The word there is misstay. All right, it's a feast. And what does the feast consist of? Unleavened bread. Unleavened bread. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Does it mention anything else? No. No, it doesn't mention anything else. Have you ever had unleavened bread? Do you ever, at Passover, you ever participated in a Passover or the days of unleavened bread, the feast of unleavened bread, the seven days? Basically, it's crackers. It's, crackers yeah. it's like saltine crackers. It's flat. It's not real tasty. It's kind of boring. All right. This is his feast. All right. This is his feast? Crackers? Mm-hmm. All right. Come on in. I'm going to give you a feast. Here are, your, here are your crackers. How much is this in contrast to the situation with Abraham? When Abraham offered a morsel and he provided an honest to goodness feast and here the word is used feast and so you're expecting something much more than a morsel of crackers all right it's kind of like the opposite of what turned out to be the case with Abraham so it just seems like an ironic twist in a sense of what it looked like over at least with Abraham's barbecue that he had over there all right (laughs) verse 4 somebody want to read verse 4 now, before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. Excellent, thank you, Mike. Before they lay down, what does that mean? NIV has a different has an additional comment there or a different translation. Somebody using they were NIV preparing to retire. As they were preparing to retire for the night, as they were getting ready to go to bed. All right, so you can imagine this. They've they've had their meal. All right, they're getting ready to go to bed for all intents and purposes. Lot thinks they're just going to sleep through the night, get up the next morning, and move on to some other destination. All right, so they're preparing to go to bed, or before they're laying down for bed. The men of the city, the men of Sodom, and what age are they? Old. Young and old. This is like a multi generational situation going on outside. All right. This is not a family friendly event though. You get you get that, right? (laughs) Most of us know the story and how it turns out. This is not a father-son, you know, fishing activity. All right. This is deplorable activity and it's involving father-son. It's involving young and old. All the people from every quarter is what mine reads. NIV says from every part. And where it's describing there or using that word every quarter or every part, that can be used to describe either the city, that they're coming from every part of the city. Or it could be describing the population from every part of the population. Okay, So that word could be modifying either one of those. And they surround the house. Have they said anything yet? No, it sounds almost like it's somewhat concerted in the sense that they've surrounded the house before verse 5. What does verse 5 say? And they call to Lot, Where are the men who came with you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them excellent so that we may know them oh i guess they're strangers and they just they want to meet and play parcheesi or something (laughs) is that what's going on here this word for no in hebrew it's the word yada all right this word occurs 948 times out of the 948 times that it occurs in the bible the overwhelming majority of them do mean no as in knowledge okay but 15 of those times it's clear it's not knowledge it's it's something other than just head knowledge okay Mine says, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Oh, so that we can have sex with them. So there's a translation committee that is doing us a favor. They're providing for us the context, even though the word itself does not demand, in this verse alone, that it's sex. All right. Mine says, bring them out. Us that, we know them that we may know them carnally. So that's New King James version that we have over there, right? I want to show you a couple places. Let's go to some uh, Genesis chapter four. All right, Genesis chapter four uses the same word in three different verses in chapter four. All right, this word yada. In chapter four, verse one. Somebody mind reading that one? Now the man had relations with his wife Eve. And she conceived and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Excellent. Thank you, LeVette. So here we have in this passage, it's clear this is something beyond just head knowledge, right? Because Adam knew his wife Eve head knowledge before this, and she didn't get pregnant. All right, In this passage, he knows her some other way, and she gets pregnant. That's obviously implying it's a sexual it's a sexual relationship that they've had. All right, that it—that it's that kind of no. How about in verse seventeen? Somebody might be reading that one, of the same chapter, Genesis four seventeen. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. Excellent, thank you, Mike. So same word, knew in the sense of she gets pregnant. All right. How about verse twenty five? Somebody might be reading that one. Same chapter. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son, and named him Sid. Excellent. So Adam knows his wife again. And she gets pregnant again. All right, So it's clearly more than head knowledge. It doesn't demand that it have to be translated that way. But when the context demands it, then you translate it as a sexual knowledge, not a not a head knowledge. Mm-hmm. And in the context, going back to where we're at here, in the context of Genesis chapter 19, it's not know them like I want to meet your, your friends that are staying in your house. It's want to know them sexually. Awkward. <laughs> okay, kind of strange. Kind of a strange situation. So what are they demanding? They want to have sexual relationship homosexual relationship with the strangers with the visitors okay you can see how this is beyond violating hospitality all right <laughs> this is no longer a hospitable situation now lot he's still thinking hospitality because it was in in that society you were responsible for your guests When your guests came under your roof, they were under your protection. And if anything happened to your guests, you were responsible. And we'll look at that a little bit as we go. But what are they demanding? They're demanding homosexual relationships with the men that are inside the house. Is this a violation of what's wholesome and good and right in in the eyes of God? Yes. Yes, it is. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13. God says, if a man lies with a male as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination, they shall surely be put to death, their blood shall be upon them. Mm -hmm. It's an abomination for men to have sexual relationships with other men. Mm -hmm. And some people might hear that, and they might go, yeah, but that's the Old Testament. I'm sure it's been modified in the New Mm -hmm. Testament. That was Leviticus, what? That was Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13. Mm -hmm. In Romans chapter one, Paul's opening up his letter to the church in Rome. And he ends up in the second half of that chapter one, he ends up describing a situation of what it looks like in a society when they turn their back on God. And he says, when a society turns their back on God, you can expect to see these things. And he starts to describe those things. And among the things that he describes, particularly in verse 27, it says this. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. He's talking about homosexual relationships. And he's saying that's not a problem in society. He's saying that's a symptom of a bigger problem. Mm It's a symptom of the bigger problem of a society turning its back on God. And he says when a society turns their back on God, God turns them over to this, 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 and this. And included in the list is men with men, sexual relationships. Where was that? That one's in Romans chapter 1. And the whole passage is verses 18 through 32. But that particular one is verse 27. As we in our society, as we complete our transition away from God, because that's the direction we're going, and I don't think that's any big secret in this room. As our society continues in that direction, in that trajectory, where we're completing, where we're turning completely away from God, we can expect to see this become something that's more and more prevalent. In First Corinthians chapter six, verses nine through eleven, Paul lists a whole list of people. He says, "Do not be deceived," and he says, "These people will not inherit the kingdom of God." And included in the list in chapter six, verse nine, it says, "Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God?" Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves. And it goes on and on. So those are included in the list where he ends up saying, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God at the end of verse 10. Mm -hmm. But there is, for some people, I'm sure hearing this would perhaps cause somebody to go, I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. And maybe somebody's engaged in that kind of behavior. And somebody's saying... Oh, great, now I'm crossed off the list. I can't even get into the kingdom of God. There's no hope for me. The the passage ends with verse 11, which provides good hope for somebody in that situation. Paul says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, mm-hmm. you were sanctified, mm-hmm. you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So a person can come out of that lifestyle. Mm-hmm. There is hope for a person that maybe is trapped in that lifestyle not knowing any different, and then they're confronted with the truth that this is an abomination to mm-hmm. God, and you know, if you're tempted to think mm-hmm. then there's no hope, no, that's not the situation mm-hmm. at all. God provides for the opportunity for somebody to leave that lifestyle and to be, what are the words here, washed to be sanctified and to be justified, mm-hmm. that it's not too late for somebody that might be in that situation. And it could be so many things, like, for example, for idols, it, it doesn't have to be an idol. It, it can be money. It can be Absolutely whatever right. is that driving you that you forget about what is important. Absolutely right. And that list is longer. There's other stuff on that list. So if you're not disqualified by one of those, you you keep reading. Everybody's going to get their toes stepped on eventually. And it provides the good news for all of us that there is hope for all of us. That no matter what background we come out of, God still says there's a chance that you too can be sanctified. Almost a sin list. It's almost a sin list. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it goes on. After sodomites, it goes to thieves, covetous, drunkards revilers extortioners okay Okay. some of those you can measure on outward behavior but covetous is something on the inside you notice that you walk by a magazine stand in the grocery store and you can't almost help but be covetous you walk by the magazine stand, and you're like, oh, I like bicycles. And there's a magazine for bicycles. And all of a sudden, you're covering the bicycle on the front cover. Or, oh, I like to work in my garden. And you look at the magazine, there's a magazine for you. Better home and garden. All right? And you're, there's something for everybody. Just like Lutitia <laughs> was saying, there, you can make an idol out of anything. Of course, there's car magazines. There's sports magazines. There's any kind of magazine you want to feed your lust, your covetousness. I've had to cancel some of my magazine subscriptions. Because I was feeling <laughs> content. And then the latest issue arrives, and I go, I don't have one of those. Mm-hmm. I didn't know I needed one of those. Mm-hmm. I didn't know I needed one yesterday, but now I have the eggs in my hand. Oh, yeah, now I need one of those. And it fuels covetousness in me. And I, you know, yeah. I finally had to just not renew when it was it's time so to renew all of those. I know, it's so subtle. You're just sitting there in your bathroom on your toilet. Oh, sorry. sorry, too much, <laughs> too much information. Moving on. <laughs> all right, verses 6 and 7. Somebody might be reading, reading verses 6 and 7. <laughs> the lot went out to them through the doorway. Shut the door behind him he said, please, my brothers, do not do so wickedly. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. We have in this situation the door is the main object that's being spoken of. And the door is, is kind of symbolic in the sense that outside the door, outside the door, what do you have? Outside the door you've got, like, the wickedness. Yeah. And inside is righteousness. Yeah. Outside the door you've got the condemned. And inside you've got the people eventually that will be saved. Outside the door, you've got vulgar, and inside the door, you've got civil. All right. But the door also stands for something interesting as well. Over in the Song of Solomons, chapter 8, verse 9, the door stands for protected virginity. All right, And we're going to see how that might actually have a little something to do with what we're going to see in the very next verse. All right, Protected virginity. Also, when he uses that word there in describing in verse 7, what does he call them when he addresses the crowd? What word does he use to describe his relationship with them? Brothers. Brothers, good. NIV has friends new king james version has brethren all right this is a word this is the same word that was used to describe lot's relationship with abraham all right before they separated ways so lot and abraham was this word and now he's trying to address the crowd using that same word to describe as if they have a similar relationship we're going to see whether or not they're going to honor that in in the sense that they're going to have that same relationship that he once had with abraham all right so it could be a figure of speech, it could be a way of uh, addressing them uh, politely, or it could also be a way of calling upon them to recognize recognize him as being of equal stature in their civil commitment to the city, All right, in their being people of power and influence in the city. So he's appealing to them, perhaps, and saying, Hey, brothers, you, know, you and I, we're on the same level status you know, so so- in this society, in this, in this city. But we're going to find out if they reject that. Somebody mind reading verse 8? Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. (laughs) Do you hear what the offer is? Is it clear to everybody in here what the offer is? Doesn't that make you sick to your stomach? I mean, how warped does your sense of priorities have to be, right, that you decide that this is a suitable offer, right? When a person lives in a debauched society or a debauched state long enough, they get to the point where it warps their sense of priorities, all right? And we see that happening to Lot. Let's go back a little bit for a second here. Turn to chapter 13. Chapter 13. Let's talk about Lot's relationship to Sodom by looking at chapter 13, verse 8. This is where Abraham and Lot part ways, where Abraham, you know, he takes them to a point where he looks over the land, and he can see Canaan, the hill country. He can see the plains down there in in the valley. And he can go anywhere he wants. Abraham says, choose anywhere you want to go. And I'll let you go. I'll take the other direction. All right. So in chapter 13, verse 8, what does it say there in verse 8? Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Excellent. Verse 9. Is not the whole land before you? Separate, Separate yourself from me if you take the left hand then I will take the right. Or if you take the right hand, I will take go to the left. Excellent. Thank you, Ron. And then verse 10 says, And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of the Jordan. Right, So he's looking down from this high vantage point. He sees the plain of the Jordan. And it's a beautiful place, right? Look what it says. That it was well watered everywhere. And then in parentheses, if your version's like mine, Well, this is before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. (laughs) Okay, so it's well-watered. It looks like the the garden of God, all right? It says, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you go towards Zerar. And then, verse 11, then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east. And they separated from each other. Lot chooses the plain, and he moves to the plain, right? right? Then look at verse 12. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain. Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, and then what's the second half of that verse say? And pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. So Lot originally, up on the hill, looks down, beautiful plain. Looks like the garden of the Lord. I'm going to move down to the beautiful plain. And then by the end of the next verse, he's moving, still on the plain, but he's getting kind of close to the city of Sodom. He's kind of gravitating toward this particular city, toward the city of Sodom. And now we find, as we're in chapter 19, how it opens up, he's sitting in the gate of Sodom. Mm-hmm. You're seeing that he's moving closer and closer and closer to the city of wickedness. Because how did chapter 13 end? Do you see the very last verse, verse 13? But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. The reputation's known already back in chapter 13. And he's moving closer and closer and closer to that. He is moving into Sodom, but you know what else is going on? We see evidence of that here in this, in this verse, chapter 19, verse 8. He's moving closer to Sodom, but... Sodom's moving into him. He's moving closer to Sodom, but Sodom's moved in. He's adopting the priorities of Sodom. He's coming up with warped sense of what's right and wrong because he's been living there. The cacophony of the society that's reaching to heaven, he doesn't even hear it anymore. He should never even be here. Remember, he why did they separate? Because he had lots of flocks. You don't have your flocks with you in your house inside the city. He shouldn't even be in there. That's why they separated, because he needed more pasture land. Mm -hmm. And now he's living in a city he should never be in. Mm -hmm. See, now I have two daughters who have not known a man. This is how we know the context. He's clearly talking about a knowledge in the sexual sense. Who have not known a man, please let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them whatever you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof, or NIV has the protection of my roof. Here we have a situation where a man is offering a woman over who doesn't have a whole lot of say, trying to save his own skin, his own reputation, his own face. Mm -hmm. We've seen this before, too, though. Remember with Abraham, when he offered Sarah, in a sense, when they moved down to Egypt, and he said, at least he said, please. (laughs) He said, please do this for me. When we get down there, just say you're my sister. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't say she had a whole lot of say in that matter. Just like his daughters, Lot's daughters here, don't seem to have a whole lot of say. Uh, We should not excuse Lot... He's thinking that, oh, well, he was at least trying to take care of his visitors. No, he's operating from a very warped sense and perspective. All right. So when he makes that proposal and he's offering his daughters and he tries to make it more appealing to the crowd because his daughters are virgins, what does the crowd say? Well, we have that answer in verse 9. And they said, stand back. Then they said, this one came in to stay here. And he keeps acting as a judge. The ESV has, this one came to sojourn here. NIV has this person's a foreigner. New Living Translation, this person's an outsider. NASB says this person's an alien. They're basically saying, here's this new guy. Where does he get off trying to tell us that what we're doing is wicked? Where does he get off trying to be the judge of our behavior, of our conduct? And then addressing him, addressing Lot specifically, now we will deal worse with you than with them. It's not clear from this verse whether or not the crowd has decided to take him as their substitute, to take out their aggression on him instead of his friends, his guests, or whether they plan to have their way with the guests first and then turn around and have their way with him. And then verse 9 ends with, So they pressed hard against the man-lot and came near to break down the door. New Living Translation says they lunged against him or lunged at Lot. In the uh, complete Jewish Bible says they crowded in against Lot. All right. There's two things to notice in this passage, in this verse, verse 9. Number one, they're saying this guy's an outsider. We don't know how long he's lived in Sodom. But apparently, however long it's been, he's still the new guy. He's still the newcomer. He doesn't have a place. He doesn't have a say. He doesn't have a standing in our presence to tell us what's wicked and what's not. And number two, this idea of being a judge, right? This idea of being a judge or him judging their actions. Verses 10 and 11. Key the music of the superhero rescue theme song or something. Because verses 10 and 11, what happens? The men inside, right? The guests, the angels, the men reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. In verse 10 there, the idea of divine beings shutting the door, we've seen this before. You'll probably remember from Noah. Who was it that closed the ark? It wasn't Noah. It wasn't his family. The door was shut by God. It was shut by a divine being. And here we have a door being shut by a divine being once Lot is on the inside and safe, And then you also have in verse 11 here, what do the angels end up doing? They end up striking the crowd with blindness, striking the mob with blindness. There's only one other place where this blindness, this word, the Hebrew word here for the blindness, occurs, and that's over in 2 Kings chapter 6. And it's interesting to look at that story because you find out in that story that this word doesn't necessarily require that the blindness be is in the sense of not being able to see anything. If you read that story over there in 2 Kings chapter 6, with the main characters being Elisha and his servant and the Syrians, you find out that their blindness is not so much inability to see, it's the inability to perceive or to understand or to comprehend what they're seeing. So in that story, you find out they can still see, but they can't comprehend. They're unable to comprehend and process that information. And it could be the same case over here. It may not be that all of a sudden everything is dark in their eyes or that they can't see anything and it's all just a black murkiness. No, but it rather could be a confusion of what they're seeing. And an interesting thing, too, here is I notice, they don't stop trying to find the door. Even after they're struck with this blindness, they're still looking for the door. You look at the end there of that verse, the end of verse 11, it says they became weary trying to find the door. Why are they weary? Because they're looking for it in their blindness. They're still looking for a way in. How scary would that be if you're one of Lot's daughters and you're on the inside and you hear these men, the mob. You've heard your dad offer you up to this crazed lunatic mob outside. And they're still trying to get in. They're still trying to find the door. What a situation. It's at this point in verses 10 and 11, especially when the angels strike the crowd with blindness, that the angels end up showing their supernatural character. Here the angels are protecting humans. And you see it clearly that they're protecting Lot and his family. And you find out, hmm, angels step into our lives and are able to do things to protect us. That's kind of cool that God might send his messengers, that God might send his divine angels, might send his supernatural beings to provide protecting roles in our lives. Verse 12, then the man, this is the angels, then the man said to Lot, have you anyone else here, son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whomever you have in the city, take them out of this place. Two things to notice about this verse. Number one, notice the angels are not omniscient. It starts with a question, right? They say, have you anyone else here? They don't seem to know the answer to that. God is omniscient. He knows everything. But that is not a quality that's shared by the angels. And number two, notice there's no mention of Lot's wife. Some of you know the end of this story as to what happens to Lot's wife. We'll talk about that next week. Verse 13, they give an explanation why they're telling Lot to find the people that he's related to. Verse 13 says, For we will destroy this place, because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Here in this verse, we have that word outcry again. And this should hearken back to the last chapter. This is the same word that was used over in chapter 18, verses 20 and 21, when Yahweh, yod heh vav was having a discussion with Abraham over there. And he ended up saying over in verses 20 and 21 in chapter 18, and the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave or grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me and if not I will know it this is the same word here in this verse as we saw over there in Genesis 18 20 and 21 so what was the outcry what was the sin what was the reason for the outcry reaching as far as heaven what was it that was Sodom's sin well we have this behavior here that we can see being engaged in by the mob and you remember and we've seen already in this study today that that behavior is an abomination men having sex with men It's an abomination according to Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13, as we've already seen today. But there's another passage that I want to draw your attention to. It's in Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 49 and 50, has a list of the sins of Sodom. A list of the sins of Sodom in Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 49 and 15. I'm going to go ahead and read these verses. I'm going to read this list. And what I want you to do is, as you're listening to the list, ask yourself if any of these sound familiar, I don't know, perhaps in the society you're living in now. Ezekiel 16, verses 49 and 50 says this. Look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride. Pride, that's the first thing that makes the list. Fullness of food. An abundance of idleness. Hmm. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. So, people unwilling to help the poor and needy. And verse 50, and they were haughty or arrogant. Arrogance. And then the last one on the list, and committed abomination. We've seen the committed abomination right here in this passage that we're looking at in Genesis, but it's the last thing to make the list of several things that God has against Sodom, as penned for us by Ezekiel in chapter 16. Genesis chapter 19, verse 14, So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who had married his daughters, and said, Get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But to his sons-in-law, he seemed to be joking. To his sons-in-law, he seemed to be joking. The word for joking here, the Hebrew word for joking, it's actually the same word that we saw in the last chapter, when Sarah laughed. And it's the same word we saw when Abraham laughed. It's the same word. They're laughing. The sons-in-law are laughing at Lot. You remember why Sarah laughed? Remember why Abraham laughed? Well, you're going to have a kid in your old age, really. Abraham's thinking, I'm going to be 100 years old. Sarah's thinking, I'm going to be 90 years old by the time this would come to pass. They laughed because it was incredible. It was ridiculous. And when Lot says, To his sons-in-law, get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. What's their reaction? They laugh. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's impossible. What did we learn last week? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Regarding this phrase using, uh, talking about sons-in-law, how do we reconcile that with verse 8? Over in verse 8, he's offering his daughters who have never known a man, and here, he's got sons-in-laws. There's a couple different possibilities. Number one, this is a contradiction in the Bible and there's no way to get around it. The Bible lies to us. That's a possibility. How about another possibility? Their relationship is not yet finalized. They're maybe betrothed and they're as good as sons-in-law, but the marriage actually hasn't been fully finished yet. We saw that with Joseph and Mary. Joseph and Mary in the New Testament, in the Gospels, we find that that was the relationship they had when it was announced to Mary that she would bear the Son of God. That maybe the arrangement has already been made. The marriage is already as good as done. These are the people that his daughters are going to marry, and it just hasn't been finalized yet. That's a possibility. Here's another possibility. Maybe Lot's got other daughters than the two he's offering. Maybe the sons-in-law here are married to other daughters of Lot who didn't actually make it out of the city. Maybe I'm getting in my ahead of myself. That's next week. Some of his daughters make it out of the city. Perhaps he had others that didn't. Here's an interesting observation too. In Lot's addressing of the mob, of the crowd, and in Lot's petition to his sons-in-law, what do you see? You see a similar situation in both of those circumstances. But let's concentrate now just on, on Lot addressing the mob. You have the people in the mob, right? The people of the society are living in wickedness. And then there's this voice in the minority that declares their wickedness and warns of pending judgment. And they don't believe and they ridicule. And they don't realize it's their final warning. You know, that's a calling that some of us might feel is upon us. Where we live in a society and you look around and you feel like there's wickedness all around. And you raise your voice and you try to say, what you're doing is wrong, it's grieving God, it's an abomination in his sight. And you're trying to warn them, God's going to judge this kind of behavior. God's going to judge this kind of action. And what's the response? Ridicule. They think you're joking. They're laughing at the prospect. It's ridiculous. What's the next step in our society, in our, in our day, if we're following that same recipe? It's that the judgment of God is pending. The judgment of God is looming. It's very near, and it's, in this story, what was it? It was before the night was over. So maybe we shouldn't say anything if they're just going to laugh at us. Isaiah has a lesson for us. There's a lesson in Isaiah where it says, we're to tell the people who are about to perish, we're to warn them of their sins in the direction that they're going. And if they don't listen, it's on them. But if we don't go, it's on us. Their blood will be upon us if we don't at least go and warn them. So some of the key points from today's lesson. Number one, don't put yourself in that place in the first place. Don't put yourself in Sodom when you shouldn't be in Sodom. Number two, Sodom's ancient sins sound a lot like our sins today. And the third thing to realize is that judgment is coming. We cannot continue on in the path that we're going, looking more and more like Sodom, and not expect God to send his judgment upon us. Judgment is coming. Billy Graham, in 1965, Billy Graham wrote a book that was published. The book was called World of Flame. And as he was writing that book, he wrote a chapter that particularly described the sinful conditions in America and gave it to his wife, Ruth, to read. We're talking over 50 years ago. And when she was done reading that chapter, she was appalled at the description of what it looked like in America, the sinful condition of America. And she took the manuscript back to her husband and she said, Billy, if God doesn't come soon and bring judgment upon the United States, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Folks, we're living in a day and age when that was over 50 years ago. How much more like Sodom and Gomorrah have we grown to become? God's judgment is pending. It's looming. It's near. But it's held back for now. Why would it be held back? Because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That verse right there is from 2 Peter chapter 3. And I want to end this study today by reading 2 Peter chapter 3. Listen to the warnings, and I want you to listen to the relevance of the material that's contained in 2 Peter chapter 3, especially in relationship to this study that we've just had here in discussing Sodom and Gomorrah. I could read the whole chapter, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to try to cut it down a little bit at least. Starting in verse 3 here. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willingly forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth which now exist are kept in store by the same word, reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men but beloved do not forget this one thing that with the lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day the lord is not slack concerning his promise remember i said judgment is coming the lord is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness but is long suffering toward us not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's verse 9. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? That would be our challenge here today. With this understanding that judgment is coming, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to make the most of this time that we have left here on this earth. Lord, we look around and we can't help but wonder how much longer we could continue on in this direction, in this path of turning our backs on you. Help us, Lord to turn from our wicked ways and turn to you and acknowledge you as our Lord and as our Savior, creator of the universe, to whom we realize we must give an account. Lord, I pray that you would give us strength, give us courage, help us to do what's right, lead us, Lord, in our steps that we take, that we be walking in your path. Bless us, Lord, in doing your service and bringing you glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.